Uh, we are in the middle of a series on the life of David. If you're just joining us, uh, we're kind of in the middle of that series. We'll finish that up actually at the end of November. And we're going to look at a passage today that doesn't have the excitement of the David and Goliath story. And it doesn't have the ooh-ah intrigue of the David and Bathsheba story. But this may be one of the most important passages in all of the Bible. It's God's covenant promise to David that he would have a man on, uh, from his line on the throne forever. In fact, if you want to know the story of Jesus, this is the backstory. This is the backstory of the story of Jesus. But let me tell you this, what we're going to get to know better even than the story today is the one who's written the story. We're going to concern ourselves more actually with the writer and the character of that writer than we are with the story. So keep that in mind as we jump in here. I'm in 2 Samuel chapter 7. If you've got a Bible, you can open it up to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 1, now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies... The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I ever speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give them rest. I will give you rest from all your enemies." Moreover, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, who I put away before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for your word. We don't just say that because we like to hear ourselves talk. We need our hearts to know that we need to be thankful. For it is your word that we come under. 
It is your word that has power. It is your word that has authority. So we ask now, Lord, that you would open our, our, our ears and soften our hearts, that we might hear what you have to say to us this morning, and open our eyes that we would see Jesus, and in seeing him, would worship him more fully. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, I'm sure most of you know what the Sistine Chapel is. It's a chapel in a big church, but the thing that makes it really famous is that the artist Michelangelo has painted this incredible scene on the ceiling. He did it in 1512. I had forgotten how old it was. And in 1512, you know, the only light source outside of the sun that would come in through the windows was candles. And for a long time, that was the only thing that ever lit up the chapel were candles. Well, if you've ever lit a candle in your house, you know, and blown it out, you see the little black smoke that rises up, right? When you light a candle, when you burn a candle, especially in the 16th century, you're going to get a lot of soot, a lot of grime, a lot of stuff that's going floating up into the air, and where is it going to land? On the ceiling. And so after 400 years of candle burning in this chapel, People would come in and art critics would come in and just regular folks like us would come in and they would just be amazed by Michelangelo's painting, but always kind of wondered, yeah, it's, it's kind of dull. So the colors are a little odd, a little cloudy. I mean, the composition is amazing. You know, you see God and his hand reaching over to Adam and Adam reaching up and everybody has marveled just at the grandeur of the painting, but really critics have all kind of said, you know, Michelangelo, yeah, he's amazing, but really his color, eh, not so great. Until the mid-80s when they launched into this project of restoration that took about 15 years where they slowly uncovered those little layers of grime and took them off and what was actually behind there, the real painting that had been hidden, was glorious, beautiful colors, a wide array, a huge palette of colors and everybody had stepped back and said, wow, my claims was even better than we thought, this is incredible. The restoration really revealed the true character of the painting, the mural. Conversations can do that too, can't they? Conversations can reveal character. Maybe you've had a conversation with somebody where you realized, oh, I just learned something about this person that I didn't know before. I remember a conversation with someone close to me where they actually insinuated that I'd do something kind of not so legal. And I realized at that point, oh, I didn't know that about your character, and now I do. Or on the positive side, maybe you remember the conversations that you had with your spouse when you were dating, and you realized in that conversation something about his or her character that just lit you up. Oh, that's who this person is. That's why I'm falling so deeply in love with him or with her. It's because of this piece of her character that has been revealed in this conversation. Well, David really has a conversation with God in this passage that we just talked about. It's a conversation that's mediated through the prophet Nathan. But as David is having this conversation with God, his character is really revealed. God's character is revealed to David and to us. It's kind of like peeling back the layers of grime on the Sistine Chapel. And we get to see actually really clearly who God is. The God who makes this grand, amazing, long-standing promise to David and to his people is a God who is humble, gracious, and faithful. 
That's actually three ways we're going to look at God this morning. Now, there are a lot of other words we can use to describe the character of God. We're only going to look at three. So if, you, if you're the kind that likes to take notes and you get super excited about three-point sermons, this is your day. Humble, gracious, faithful. Okay? Let's first look at God's humility. It's really interesting, isn't it? You open up this scene and you have David kind of having a conversation with his pastor. Nathan is the prophet, but he's also kind of like David's pastor. And you almost get the feeling they're just sitting around in chairs, maybe on somebody's roof. They cracked open a cold one or they're having a cup of coffee and they're just talking. And David says, you know, I've been thinking about something. The Lord has been good to me. He is He has been good to me in ways that I can't imagine. He's blessed me infinitely. And you know, I just built this big palace for myself, and it's nice, it's super nice, and I just realized God's still living in a tent. The ark of God still dwells in this tabernacle, this tent that's been traveling with us wherever we go. You know what I'm going to do, Nathan? I'm going to build a temple for God. That's, that's That's really the least that I could do. And Nathan, like the good pastor he is, says, that sounds like a great idea. Go, do all that is in your heart. You could kind of imagine uh, if we were in the middle of a building campaign, we were raising money to buy a new building, and we had, you know, like the thermometer over here like you've seen before, and one of you came and sat down with me and said, Pastor, the Lord has been good to me. And out of, our, out of that goodness, out of the abundance and the provision that he's given us, I'd like to write a $2 million check to the church so that we can get this new building going. I would guarantee you, I would say, go and do all that is in your heart. That's like a pastor's dream. That's amazing. But interesting, isn't it? The Lord actually tracks down Nathan later and says, all right, hold on a second. That's actually not what I want. And he tells Nathan, yeah, it's a great idea. Go tell David Nice idea and all, but you're not the guy, and this isn't the time. And what God says that's so amazing here is he starts to then recall who he is and how he has been with his people. God starts recalling, all right, let's think back over all of the time that I've been with my people. How have I been with them? Well, when they've been poor, I've been poor. When they've been traveling, I've been traveling. When they have had no rest, I have had no rest. God is telling David and he's telling his people, I am going to be with you. I have bound myself to you. I have stooped down as low as I can to be with you. I don't want you to build a house right now because I want you to see something more important. I want you to see that I have been with you wherever you are. Maybe you've seen a parent or maybe you've been this parent who's gotten down on the floor, you know, to play with your kids. I hope you have. But when you get down on the floor to play with your kids, I mean, there is something physically difficult about that. I don't like being on the floor. I don't like sitting on the floor. It hurts my back. Like my whole body just, it's just not really meant to be on the floor. And it's mentally a challenge too, right? Like, let's play that same memory game that we've played like every hour today, even though I know where all these cards are or Candyland, how insufferable of a game is Candyland. But you play it because your kids love it. And you get down on the floor and you do what they're doing and you stoop down physically and mentally to be on their level and to be with them. 
That's what God is telling David. Let's look at what I've done. I've gotten down on the floor with you. I'm playing Candyland with you. I've gotten down in the very nitty gritty of it all. And in your poverty, I've been poor. And in your sojourning, I've traveled with you. And I am with you even at the very small, minute level. And just as you thought it couldn't get any better, when you open up the New Testament, what do we hear from John? Is that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word in Greek for dwelt, guess what word it is? Tabernacle. That Jesus tabernacled among us. That he, even though it seems like God couldn't get any closer than dwelling in a tent, he couldn't become more humble than being with his people as they traveled, he did. He became one of them. He became one of us. He put on our flesh and our humility. He, he bore our struggles and our sins, Isaiah tells us, so that he might be with us and carry the sins that we could not carry on our own. Friends, your God is humble. I love that we got to look at his holiness last week and we get to look so clearly at his humility this week because both of those things are infinitely true. God is unique and far above us. He is holy beyond imagining, yet he is humble. It's amazing that God would stoop down to our level. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians that Jesus, though he was rich, became poor so that we might become rich. That's the God you worship. He's humble. All right, second thing, grace. God is gracious. What do I mean by that? Well, in verses 8 through 11, God is actually, through the prophet Nathan, telling David all of the things that he has done for him and that he will do for him. Right? He starts by saying, listen, David, I've been with you. I've been with you when you were a shepherd, young boy. I've been with you when you were with fighting that giant, Goliath. I've been with you when you were fighting all of the nations around you. I've been with you, and I will continue to be with you, and I will give you rest, and I will give you success, and I will do it. But listen to this awesome part here in verse 11. For the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I'll give you rest from them and for all your enemies Moreover, the Lord declares to you, and this is the important part, that the Lord will make you a house. What did David say he wanted to do for God? He wanted to build him a house, right? But God says, yeah, great idea. How about this? I'll do it. How about instead of you building me a house, I'll build you one instead? And this is the beauty, actually, of this word in Hebrew, is that in Hebrew, this word has a big range of meaning. It can mean the physical structure that you walk into, a house, like we think of a house. It could also mean household, like family, or lineage, or heritage. See what God does here? David says, I want to build you a house, little house. God says, how about I build you a big house? How about instead of you building me a little temple, I build you a heritage that will last forever. How about I build you a family that will stay on the throne for eternity? How about I build you the kind of heritage that will someday, again, be met in Jesus, my son? See, there was actually kind of a formula in the, in the ancient world uh, with pagan gods. There was a negotiation that would typically go back and forth between a king and a pagan god, and it went something like this. Oh God, oh pagan God, I would like you to make me successful. 
I would like for you to build me kind of a line of, of kings that come after me so that my line and my heritage doesn't end and my name gets to carry on forever. I want you to do that for me. And then the God would say, eh, maybe I'll think about it, uh, but how about first you build me a temple? Then we'll think about what I'm going to do for you. And so the king would say, okay, great. I'll build a big temple. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be glorious. Everybody's going to see it. And then the God will be in my debt. Then he will owe me a favor. Then he will need to actually kind of come through on his promise. That's the way that the negotiation went. Do you see the difference? Do you also see yourself maybe negotiating that way with God sometimes? We do this in really juvenile ways of, you know, Lord, if you'll just actually make me do well on this test, I'll, I'll, I'll devote my life to you. I'll do everything. I'll become a missionary, whatever it is. But we can do it in some more subtle ways, too. Suffering. God, I, I deserve better than that. God owes me more than suffering. Look at what I've put in. Look at what I've done for him all this time. God can't bring this upon me. He owes me. That is not the way that God actually approaches David. When David comes and says, let me do something for you, God says, how about I do it for you instead? How about I do for you what you could never do? How about I do for you what you would love to do but you'll never be able to do? How about I do it, not you? I heard a pastor tell a story about a friend of his who in his young 20s, this guy was just like the guy. He was a college athlete. He was, you know, big and strong. He was charismatic, and everybody loved him and magnetic in his personality. He was really a wonderful Christian man. He would lead Bible studies all the time. His prayer life was nice and robust. Everybody thought, that's the guy. We want to be like that guy. He does so much for the Lord, and it's really wonderful. And then he got cancer, a curable but really difficult cancer. And this man recalls this time being in the hospital bed after going through rounds of chemo and radiation and his body just being decimated and weak. And he got up out of his bed just to go to the bathroom, but he was too weak even to walk and he just collapsed on the ground there in his hospital room. And he said, you know, when I was laying on the ground there on the hospital floor, that's when I got the gospel. He said, because it was there that I couldn't do anything. I wouldn't lead a Bible study, I wouldn't discipline anybody, a prayer life had gone totally out the window. I was doing nothing for God. I was just a shell of a man, and God still loved me. And that's when I finally understood what the gospel is, is that I do nothing and Jesus does everything. Maybe there's some of you that have grown up in and out of church, and the concept in your mind has been, you know what, if I just keep the balance sheets clean, everything's going to be okay. If I just keep myself a little bit in the black, then everything will be okay with God. And I'll just do a little bit more and he'll kind of owe me some favor, and I'll keep myself right by the things that I do. If that hint has ever come into your mind, let me graciously erase it right now, because that is not good news Friends, you can never do enough to stay in the black. Our lives are so full of red. I mean, we're, it, it looks like we're bleeding all over the place. 
And the gospel is not, hey, get enough done that God might owe you his favor. The gospel is just the opposite. The good news is Jesus has done for you what you can't do for yourself. Even in the midst of all of that red, Jesus has spilled his red, his blood, to cover your sin, to give you his righteousness, to make you right before God out of what he does, not out of what you do. That's good news. It's not, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. It's not quid pro quo. It's not, here's a favor, you return the favor. It's, I'll do it. I'll do it alone. That's what God tells David here. I will be the one who unilaterally completes my covenant promise, and I will be the one who fulfills it. Our God is gracious, is he not? All right, number three, faithfulness. Third characteristics we see of God here. Faithfulness, verses 12 through 18, I read them before, but let me just kind of pick out a couple here. In verse 12, he says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall be, he shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Then skip down actually to the last couple verses, 16, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. And then the next verse, uh, uh, or the next sentence, your throne shall be established forever. Three times he says forever. Think he means it? Three times God says to David, I'm going to do what you can't do, and I'm going to do it in a way that's never going to end. I'm going to do it in a way that lasts forever. We moved here from uh, from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. When we lived in Baton Rouge, we lived in an old house, a house that was built in the mid-30s. And maybe some of you have lived or currently live in a house like this where the floors creak, right? Well, the floors creak because our house, the foundation of our house was pier and beam, big solid piers that went down vertically into the ground and then beams that went horizontally, and the house is built on that. And so there's kind of a crawl space, an open space underneath, now, I will say, I love this kind of construction because it makes things really easy. If a pipe breaks, you just go under the house and fix the pipe. If you need to kind of change some wiring around, you just go in there and change it around. If you want to move a bathroom, pretty much you can just move a bathroom, and it's great. And I had a friend in Baton Rouge who was a builder, and I asked him one day, you know, this is weird. Like, this is awesome. How come nobody ever builds like this anymore? Why don't we build houses on pier and beam anymore? And he said, oh, that's an easy answer, materials. I said, what? what do you mean? He said, well, if I built a house on pier and beam, it would rot within a year and fall down into the ground because the wood that we have to use these days just can't take it. See, my house was built with um, old growth cypress, which is virtually waterproof and indestructible, and it is an 80-year-old house. It'll last another 80 years at least. But the kind of wood that actually builders would have to use now just wouldn't cut it because what we have to use just kind of goes away quickly. It's really a lot about our culture, isn't it? Kind of a disposable culture that we live in. When the next software update comes out, you know, you won't be able to use your phone anymore because it'll be too slow and you'll have to turn it in and get another phone. You buy clothing now that's really meant to just be kind of thrown away, cast off after just a couple of years. Even big, beautiful commercial buildings have about a 50-year shelf life. That's kind of what we build for is very short term. 
Let me just say that when God makes promises in the Bible, he does not build them out of the stuff that we're accustomed to. He builds them on lasting things. His character, his faithfulness, his promises are forever. They go on and they go on. I want you to just see about this promise three really wonderful things about how long it goes. First of all is that, you know, death can't stop it. He tells David, even after you die, it's going to go on, right? Then sin can't stop it because David, I mean, we're going to see this in a couple of weeks. David's sin is going to be on clear display here just a few weeks from now. And God's promise still isn't going to go away because of David's sin. And then time doesn't stop it either. God says, not just you when you die and your son when he dies, but really it'll go on forever and forever and forever. And here's the beautiful story of Scripture, is that God is so faithful to his promises that even when his people fail to, to, to actually uh, reach their end of the bargain, God does it for them. See, you see this glimpse of the good king in David. God is telling his people, you need a king. You need someone who can lead you. You need someone who is going to lead you in righteousness and justice and in peace. You need someone who's going to protect you. You need someone who's going to model for you what it looks like actually to be a man after God's own heart. And David, in David, we get a glimpse of that. We get a glimpse of it, but then he dies. We get another glimpse of it in Solomon, his son. There's a lot of really wonderful things about Solomon's kingdom, but then Solomon dies and does some other stupid things too. And we get some little glimpses over the history of Israel's kings, people like Hezekiah and Josiah, some good kings every now and then. But by and large, the kings of Israel fail miserably. But what does God do? Forget his promise, turn away his people, tell them to head back out and find some other God to take care of them. It's not what he does. When man fails, God decides to put himself on the throne. God actually comes to take on our flesh, to be the human man in the line of David, the descendant of David that will fulfill that promise, but also to be the complete God who will show his people what it means to be fully righteous, what it means to be actually holy, what it means to be totally just. And he will take on their sin by shedding his life on the cross. That's the character of the God that we serve. A God that would send himself to earth to do what we couldn't do. To be totally humble, we find that actually about Jesus. To be full of grace, John says, and truth. And to be faithful even to death. So that through his death and his work on the cross, he would actually complete the building project that was given to David to build the house for God's people, and then to welcome us into that house, to bring us in, that we might know his love and grace, that we might know his presence, that we might know his faithfulness. That's what we cling to today. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your character as you have revealed to us here in these promises that you made to David and fulfilled in Jesus. You've given us a good king, a righteous king, one who would be just and the justifier, one who would be gracious and one who would be faithful, 
One who in humility would lay himself down so that we might be actually glorified. But that is too big for us even to get our heads around. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd be at work in our hearts that we might know that more fully. We do pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.